Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Oh, man. Do you all see the evidence? Do you see the evidence of God's goodness in your life? Turn to your neighbor and say, I see the evidence. That was weak. Really, really lay it out today, okay? We got fewer people than last week. Turn to your other neighbor and say, I really see the evidence of God's goodness. All right. You know, towards the end of the service, after the, uh, before the benediction, I'll give you an update on, on my health condition. Um, but I always want to bring the word first. That's more important than me or anything else going on. And we're continuing this morning in Ephesians chapter 2 today. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me just recap the first seven spiritual blessings that we learned about in chapter 1 uh, three weeks ago before Easter, even before Palm Sunday. Those uh, seven spiritual blessings that we find in Ephesians chapter 1 are, first of all, that we who are in Christ, are holy and blameless in his sight. Number two, we are predestined. Once you're in Christ, then you are predestined to be adopted as his sons and daughters into his family. Number three, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. Number four, we are enlightened to the mystery of the gospel. And we learned in a, as you keep, it's called the keep reading principle. And that won't be the first time I mentioned that this morning. But the keep reading principle says, you just keep reading what Paul is saying. And he'll give you the answer. He find, we find the answer to the mystery of Christ in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5. Where it says that the Gentiles are now co-heirs with Jews in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of Christ. What a beautiful blessing for all of us. And then number five, we are made heirs. We are predestined. Once again, once you come into Christ, you are then predestined to receive an inheritance in Christ. And then number six, we are included in Christ when we first believed in him. When you placed your trust in him, you were included in Christ, at which point you get all of these spiritual blessings. And then finally, and this is the great news, we are all sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are marked you, the Holy Spirit is a deposit on your life. If you are in Christ this morning, your future is secure. Your salvation is assured. Isn't that beautiful? That no matter what you go through in life, in this life, this is not the end. You have this beautiful spiritual fulfillment that will happen at the end of your days. And then we looked at the last part of chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. After we reviewed those seven spiritual uh, blessings, then in verse 15, Paul kind of turns the page and says, Now, how do you know Christ? And there are three ways in which we know Christ. The first is the hope of his calling. We all have the hope of his calling on our life. Number two, we have the riches of his inheritance in us. And then number three, we have the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our lives. 
So you see here that Paul is laying out for us in Ephesians 1, and he's setting us up for one of the more common passages that most Christians know about, which is the beginning of chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. And so we'll stand, if you can, for the reading of God's Word, and I'll read as we pick up in our study on Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, and that happens to be, uh, I should have told you this, but it's page 1133 in your pew Bible. But I'm going to read these first 10 verses. And let me just say this ahead of time. This is one of the most misunderstood passages of Scripture among Christians. And I want to hopefully shed some new light. We'll read it afresh this morning. So let's, uh, let's dig into it. Verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let us pray. Father, this is, oh, a powerful passage from the Apostle Paul. And as we come to it this morning, humbly I pray that you will open our eyes and our hearts to its truth. May it illumine our sights to your heavenly places that you have brought us up to. Because you have made us alive in Christ. And it's all because of your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we see here, what does it mean to be saved in Christ? And I would argue that there are three aspects of being saved in Christ. And it's not hard to pick out here. There's three really key aspects to it. The first is... The sin that separates. The sin that separates. How many of you have your sermon notes with you today? Notice I'm adding references. Now, why do I add references? Because I want you to go home and cross-reference these passages of Scripture. Because that is the way you will be able to tie the whole Word of God together. This is part of what we want to be as a church. I want us to be the kind of church that has our Bible open that we're reading it, that we're studying it. Because guess what? There is no power. There is no power in any other book. There is no power in a commentary. There is no power in a podcast. There is no power in a YouTube video outside of the word of Almighty God. I don't care what you say, but I'm going to the word of God. And when the word of God says it, and it's plain and clear, then it means everything to us. 
And so we see here in these first three verses, sin that separates. Look at what it says there. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now let's talk about what it means to be dead. Some say that this means that a person is totally depraved, totally outside of the will of God, totally against God, a rebel against God, and that they absolutely believe that you can't even believe, understand, or respond to the gospel. But they say that, and yet I would argue that's going too far. Then, then you are not able to respond to the gospel. They'll quote 1 Corinthians 2.14. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, it says this, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, what is Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 2.14? He says, The man without the Spirit does not accept. The word there, does not accept, is dekomai. The word dekomai literally means doesn't receive it, doesn't take it in, doesn't take what the Spirit gives him. This is strongly connected to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about people who are in their own eyes wise. They're living in this world and they think that they have all wisdom. They have all intellect. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians and he's telling the Romans is that you are suppressing the truth of the Spirit. And when you suppress the truth of the Spirit, then what you are doing is you're blinding your own eyes, literally. Because what you're doing is you're not listening to the spiritual knocking of the door on the door of your heart by the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said the Holy Spirit has come to, what? Convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so therefore, this group would say, you're totally depraved, you can't respond to the gospel, you can't do anything good, you cannot do anything spiritual, it's not easily discerned. But understand what Paul's doing here. He is helping them understand that the Corinthian church especially was still, they were Christians, but they were still living in a carnal life. Now let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you, at various periods over your life, have been a Christian, you were saved long ago. But then you went through periods where you kind of fell back into the world. You kind of got a little bit more tempted by the worldly ways of living. You started to think about what can I get out of my life? How can I become a little bit more fulfilled in what I want? You see, what, what Paul is doing to the Corinthian believers and what he's saying to them in that passage is, you are behaving spiritually immature. You're being carnal in your nature. You're living according to the natural man, not the spiritual man. You are giving into the ways of the world and not into the ways of the spirit. My question for all of us this morning is, are you being led by the Holy Spirit of God on a daily basis? Or are you being led by your own intellect, your own wisdom, your own feelings? You see, and that's the key. You have to ask yourself that every single day. Every one of us is going through a process of understanding how much of the Holy Spirit has control over our lives. And that is what Paul is getting at here. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, I could address you as people who live by the Spirit, but you are people who are still worldly. You're mere infants in Christ. You see? And so therefore, we see what Paul's doing. He is telling them, don't live according to the ways of the world. Live according to the Spirit. So does that mean we can't do anything good? No. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, after Adam had sinned, Adam and Eve had taken from the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was a direct disobedience to God's command, Adam died. Remember when God said, as soon as you eat it, you will die. Well, did he die physically? No. He didn't die physically. He died spiritually. And that's what is at play here in Ephesians chapter 1. You die spiritually. But it's interesting. Even after he sinned, Adam could still hear God. He could still understand God. He still knew he, uh, he knew God. He even knew that he had sinned. And he even expressed guilt for his sin because he hid from him. And therefore, God told him, knowing good and evil, they need to be out of the garden. But some would say, Adam is the only one who really had free choice, free ability to choose good and evil. But we go one chapter later to Genesis 4 and we see the story of Cain. Cain was angry with his brother. Cain was jealous of his brother Abel. And Cain had hatred built up in his heart. And God came and approached Cain. And he said, hey, Cain, why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Understanding the implication behind God's question is that what? Cain would be accepted by God if he inclined his heart toward him. So Cain had the ability to choose to do well. Look at Abimelech. Abimelech, in Genesis chapter 20, we see that he was a man of integrity. God called him a man of integrity. Look at the centurion in Jesus' day. The centurion came up and said, My servant has uh, fell ill. Lord, just speak, and he will be well. And Jesus said, I've not heard such faith in all of Israel. And then look at the rich young ruler. Remember, the rich young ruler came to Jesus. And he said, Lord, what must I do to inherit the, the kingdom? And he's, Jesus starts rattling off the Ten Commandments. And what does he say? What does he say? I've kept them all. And then what does God, uh, Jesus do? Jesus hits right home where his weak spot is. What's his weak spot? You have great wealth. Go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. What did the rich young ruler do? He went away sad because he had great, what does this say? Great wealth. That was his stumbling stone. But the point is, he did good things. He did good things. Cornelius was another one. He was a God-fearing man. He gave alms to the poor. He prayed to God. He sought God. Cornelius was a good man when Peter came and presented the gospel to him. And Cornelius and his whole household was saved. In Romans 2.14, we, le we learn from, from Paul that Gentiles do by nature. Sometimes they do by nature what the law requires. Their consciences also bearing witness. So one of the things that God has given all of us is the ability to understand right from wrong. Conscience. We, we know what we need to do is right. The problem is we're born into this sin condition and our tendency, our propensity is to sin. Is to do what we want to do, not what God would have us to do. All through the scripture, God calls all men to come to him. He says, choose life through Moses. He said, I set before you life and death. Choose life. 
He tells through Ezekiel, he says, repent, turn and repent. Seek God over and over and over and over again in Scripture. We are told to seek God, to search Him out. Those who seek God will find Him, and He will be found by you if you diligently seek Him. In Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us that God rewards those who diligently seek Him. How does He reward them? By shining His light of truth on His heart. So we understand that this is not physical death, because it's interesting even the church is oftentimes called dead, those who are in the church. Um, it really is a separation from God. Um, this is the keep reading principle. Do you remember what I said? We're still in verse 1 here, but look down at verse 11. What does it say there? Therefore, therefore, in other words, in light of everything I just said to you, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember, Jews and Gentiles were having, they were at fisticuffs between each other in the church, okay? The Jews felt like they were the rightful, promised children of God, and these Gentiles are coming in, and they didn't like the idea that they were being accepted under the same idea of faith as they were. But this was the, the, the challenge that Paul is addressing in his letter. And he talks about the Jew and Gentile difficulty between them. And then what he says in verse 12, he says, Remember that at that time you were what? Separate from Christ. That's what it says. You were separate. So therefore, this is sin that separates. separates. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. It means that we are separate. You know, think about the prodigal son. I don't know about you, but it should be called the parable of the loving father. It should be called that. Because it really is about a father who has two sons. One who stays home but is sinful, and one who goes off and gets into a carnal life, leading a fleshly life outside of his father's house. And this prodigal son goes off, and what happens to him? He finally comes to the point where he is no longer under his father's protection. What does he do? It says in the scripture that he came to his senses. Have you ever had a moment in your life when you knew you were in sin and you came to your senses? That is that moment when God says, I have an opportunity to bring you back. What did that prodigal son do? He ran back to the father. And what did the father say? This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was dead. Dead in his transgressions and sins, but now he's alive again. Uh, look at Revelation uh, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. We see the church in Sardis, one of the seven churches Jesus wrote to. And he says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are what? Dead. Wake up, he says to them. Wake up. So this is a church that is being written, and they're, to they're being told, you're dead. And so we understand then, what does dead mean? Well, let's look at the next two verses after what we see here, because it really is spiritual separation. It says for you, as you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you what? Followed the ways of this world. So that's the first category in which you are dead in your transgressions and sins. You follow the ways of this world. What are the ways of this world? 1 John 2.16 says this, that the, the, do not love the world. Do not love the world. Because the world 
is all about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You know, it's interesting when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was tempted on all three of these same categories of sin. This is why the scripture can say that Jesus was tempted at all points, even as we are. Because Jesus, these three categories pretty much are contain all of sin underneath of them. The first one was Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. What did the devil do? Turn these stones to bread so that you can eat. What did Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He quoted scripture, Deuteronomy. And then the devil takes him up and he says, prove that you are the son of God. Throw yourself off and he'll save you. What did Jesus say? Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The lust of the eye, he said. Could have had it all. Could have taken over. And then finally he says this. All kingdoms of the world I will give you. All kingdoms of the world I will give you if you bow down and worship me. And what did Jesus reply? He quoted Deuteronomy for a third time. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This is Jesus teaching us how to resist the worldly cravings of life, how to not be dead in our transgressions and sins. So that's the first one. The second one is, look at what it says there, follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The ruler of the kingdom that now, let me tell you something. When I read the word, I'm just gonna tell you how I study the Bible. When I read the word, I sit there and I go, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. I ask myself the question, who is that? Now, many of you who have been in church for a long time, you'll say, well, that's Satan. And then my next question out of my mouth would be like, well, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. It says the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, who is that? And so guess what you have to do? You have to cross-reference. You have to go and see where else this particular person, now we know it's a, good, it's a bad person or a bad spirit because it says the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So we know it's bad. It's a bad person. So it can't be the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It can't be Jesus. It can't be anyone good. It has to be someone that's bad, right? You get that. And so what I did is I do, I do my research and I go through and I start, and you know what I find? I find in the scripture that various times the devil is given different names. Uh, for example, John calls him the evil one. The evil one. Jesus called him the evil one in the Lord's Prayer. Okay? The evil one. But Jesus also called him the prince of this age. The prince of this age. Similar to this idea of rulership or kingdom rule. And then we get to um, uh, Paul. Paul calls him the god of this age. He refers to him as the god of this age. And in all the way to Revelation, guess what we learn? You know, we don't learn that the serpent in the Garden, in the garden of Eden in, in Genesis is Satan until we get all the way to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, where it says that ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. You see, that's how the Bible's put together. It's like a mosaic. You have to study it. You have to search it. You have to really go in and let, let God's Word illumine your heart to His truth. But it takes study. 
You can't just come and listen to a pastor preach. You've got to study the word on your own. And when you do, you find out that this is what Jesus said. In, Mar- in Matthew, and it's not in your notes, but go ahead and put it down. Mark, I mean, Matthew 6.37, Jesus himself actually says that this evil one that I keep talking about is in fact the devil. We find it in the parable of the weeds. It's in the parable of the weeds that he finally defines that this is, of course, the devil. Now, it's interesting. It says the ruler of the kingdom of the air. If we've determined now, after our cross-referencing, that this is the devil, now we've got to get to a place where we understand, okay, what is it? What is it? That call, why is he called the kingdom of the power, the ruler of the kingdom of the air? How many of you know that Paul had the privilege of being taken up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The third heaven. I I would argue that 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 heaven is the same heaven that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 when he saw the Lord seated on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and there were seraphim all around him. Very similar vision to what the revelator John said in Revelation chapter 4. And so we see this, this third heaven is where God is, his throne. And who's at the right hand of his throne? Jesus Christ. Who's at the center of the throne? Four living creatures. And there are 24 elders that are gathered there in Revelation chapter 4. And that's it. So we see that the throne room of heaven is the third heaven. Paul had the ability to go and go there as hardly anybody else had. But that, that gives me a question. Then there must be a second heaven and a first heaven. Oh, yes there is. The second heaven, one would argue, is where all of the angelic realm are. They do the bidding of God. They are ministering spirits for God. They are sent out into the world to help us and to give us a message. But what about that first heaven? Well, that's what's being referred to here, the ruler of the kingdom of air. This is Satan's domain, the atmospheric world that we live in. This is Satan's domain. He is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the atmospheric heaven. Beyond that is the stratospheric heaven. And then even beyond that is the third heaven, the heavenly place of God himself. Notice when it says in Scripture that Jesus has put everything under his feet, that is literally true because he's in the third heaven. He is at the top. All other powers, authorities, rulers, principalities are below him. So now, here's the aha moment for me. When we want to blame God for the natural disasters that we experience on this planet, we live in a fallen world. When we see that happen, we now may be able to say that the ruler of the kingdom of the air is actually bringing this about. Now understand, he doesn't do anything without God allowing it to happen. But now we can understand that sometimes we give God credit for things that he's only allowing to happen to bring about his greater purposes. This is powerful stuff. And so when we think about the ruler of the power of the air, we're thinking about Satan. It's interesting. And then it says he's the spirit that is now at work at those who are disobedient. But then there's a third. So first, first, following the ways of the world is being dead in your sins. 
following the ruler of the kingdom of the air is being dead in your sins, and then thirdly, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Now, how do we do that? How do we gratify the cravings of our sinful nature? James says it this way in chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Do you get that? God does not tempt you, folks. It's the devil. It's your own evil desires that tempt you. And it says this, but each person is tempted when they are what? Dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And so we come all the way around, and we see that in Ephesians chapter 1, I mean chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it shows us the three ways in which our sin separates us from God. Y'all see that? Sin separates us from God. Well, now we go to the second part. Look at what verses 4 through 7 say. And it is the good news. Grace that saves. Notice what it says there in verse 4. The word but. Did you all pick that up? This is all bad news up until the but, isn't it? It's all bad news. We're sinful. We're separated from God. Our sin has separated us. But, and then look at what it says. Because of his great love for us. God loves us. Guess what? God loves you. God loves you, God loves you, God loves all of us. God is love. God is love. It's the supreme method. And so when we think about God as love, it said that's why we, we know the verse. John 3, 16, for God what? So loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but what? Have eternal life. That's what love is. We need to share that love. But he's got great love for us. God loves all people. All people. No matter what their sin condition is. In fact, we see uh, that God demonstrates his own love in this. That while we were yet, what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Amen? Let's remember that God loves us. And then it has mercy. Look at what it says there. Who is rich in mercy. Do you know what it means for God to be merciful? Your mercy and grace are like bookends. On the one hand, you have mercy. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. God's not giving us what we deserve. What do we deserve? Punishment. Separation forever. Judgment. We all deserve it because of our sin. But he chooses not to. He chooses to extend mercy. When you go to a court of law and you're, you're guilty, but you throw yourself at the mercy of the court, what are you doing? You're saying, I know I'm guilty, but I'm throwing myself at the mercy of the court. This is what God does. He gives you mercy. But then, on the other hand, there's the other bookend, and it's called grace. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. He gives you what you don't deserve. So he, he doesn't give you what you deserve. And he does give you what you don't deserve because it's unmerited favor. There's nothing good you've ever done to receive righteousness before God. He is holy. There is nothing you can do. Even our most righteous acts are as filthy rags before God. And so therefore, he 
is gracious. He gives us his grace, unmerited favor. And he, it's undeserved. We don't earn it, but he gives it to us. And look at what the three actions are of God in this passage. Look at what it says in verse 4. Who is rich in mercy, what did he do? Number one, he made us alive with Christ. That's the regeneration. That's regeneration. That's being born again. When Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3, he said, what must I do to get in the kingdom? He said, you must be born again. Nicodemus is like, how do I re-enter my mother's womb? And Jesus is like, no, you missed it. you got to be born from above. You're born physically, you've got to be born spiritually. Being born spiritually means that you give your life to Christ. Then he regenerates you. He makes you new. Behold, anyone who is in Christ is a what? New creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You are regenerated. And then secondly, look at what it says. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then what does it say in verse 6? And God raised us up with Christ. That's, re that's resurrection. So you have regeneration followed by resurrection. When you get baptized, what do we do? We take a believer who says, I trust Jesus Christ. And then we say, we bury you. Right? We bury you beneath the surface because you have died to self. And now we raise you to new life in Christ. That's a resurrection moment for the person who says, I want to be baptized. It's a symbol. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ has done in your heart. You see? And that's resurrection power. We talked about that several weeks ago. The resurrection power. Last week was Easter. It was Resurrection Sunday. And then uh, the third thing is, look at what it says there. And he raised us up with Christ, seated us with him, and then seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Is that, per, uh, is that present tense or, perfect, I mean, or a future tense or past tense? He seated us. That's what? Past tense. Isn't that powerful? Paul is talking to believers who've already trusted Jesus Christ. And he's talking about being seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. As past. Because at the moment that you trust Jesus Christ, then you are, in God's eyes, restored. Restoration. So we go from regeneration to resurrection to restoration. You are restored. The relationship is no longer separate because of your sin. The sin has been covered. The penalty has been paid. You are now one with Christ. And because you are one with Christ, then you are now in the family of God. This is assurance. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That's one of my favorite hymns. I mean, it is a beautiful picture of him seating us in the heavenly realms. There is positional security for every believer because God's work is done. He's changed you. You are now His and you are on the way to His kingdom as you go. So therefore, therefore, because of these great truths of the grace of God, now we come to the final. And it's this, faith that serves you notice the first two set us up. Number one, sin that separates, brings out God's grace. It illuminates God's grace in our lives. He gives us what we don't deserve. But then he has a work for us to do once we are saved. 
once he has saved us by his grace. Look at what it says there in verses 8 and 9. Everybody knows these verses. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Let's break that down just a moment. What comes first? Faith does. In order to access the grace of God, one must demonstrate, must place their faith in that grace. It's available to all. Grace is available to all of us. But it is through faith that we get it. Now, some would say that word this, or uh, in verse uh, 8, it says, and this, not from yourselves. Some would say that means faith, but that's not it. You know why? Because the Greek word for this is tauto. I know I'm giving you some heavy stuff here this morning in Greek, but it's tauto. And do you know what tauto is? It's a neuter. It's a neuter, which means what? That it is not, rep it does not, it doesn't match up with faith because faith is feminine. In the Greek language, the, the words always have to agree by gender. And it can't be grace because grace is also feminine. So what does the this refer to? Guess what? It refers to salvation. It refers to salvation. This is not from yourselves. Salvation is not yours. Who gives it? God. God saves. And that is the beauty of it. But faith comes first, by which we access this free gift of salvation. Uh, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, it says this, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him, him, Christ, from the dead. So through faith, Faith gives us access to this grace. And this is not from yourselves, lest anyone should boast. And it is contrasted over and over and over and over again in the New Testament as with works. Faith and works don't work together. You don't do good works in order to be saved. You are saved by faith. And then the challenge is to do good works. Look at what it says there in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I will tell you, I was in a Sunday school class this morning with Marcus, and he made a beautiful point. He said if he was talking about the true vine, and if you're connected into Christ, then you have the source of all the ability to bear much fruit. Right? John 15 you are to bear much fruit. How do you bear much fruit? By staying connected to the vine. When you are staying connected to the true vine, Jesus Christ, then you will bear much fruit. My question for us this morning is, are you bearing fruit? Are you doing good works for the kingdom of God? Notice what James says. James says that faith without deeds is what? Dead. Faith without deeds is dead. In other words, you could say, I have faith. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm in the kingdom. I'm seated in the heavenly realms according to Ephesians chapter 2. Now I'm going to sit down and watch ESPN. Is that what God wants us to do? No, the rest of your life should be to bring glory to Him. How do you do that? You study His Word. You pray to Him. You give. You share your testimony. You treat a friend like a person who you really care about, who's going through a difficult time. You cry with them. You love them. You go and talk to people that other people you wouldn't normally talk to. But in the Spirit, the Spirit leads you to go talk to them. Why? Because you are now living for Christ. You're no longer living for yourself. And if we do that, 
If we do that, then Charleston will be set on fire by the Holy Spirit. But if we sit in our pews, I mean, we say standing on the premises. Many of us are sitting on the premises. And let me tell you something. That's not the Great Commission. We are to go out from this place and we are to tell people the greatest news they've ever heard. Jesus saves. I mean, if I'm taking just a smattering of amens, I don't know what's happening. We have the greatest news to share. Jesus saves. Amen. 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 Woo! We're God's workmanship. What does it say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that what? The man of God may be what? Fully equipped to do every good work. That's what we are called to do. So you see here, we are separated by our sin from Almighty God. The good news is His grace saves us. And the even better news is that our faith, our faith is what fuels us to serve in His kingdom. That's what this passage is all about. Paul is inspiring them to let their faith get legs and let them be a light to the world around them. I see in this passage also everybody's testimony. You all have a story. You know that, right? You have a story. Your story begins with before Christ. Before Christ. Where were you before Christ? You were a friend of the world. You were following your own evil desires and all of the things that you want. And then you come into an encounter with Christ. This grace, this amazing grace, you start to see, my life is never going to measure up. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so now I am going, I am literally going to trust Jesus Christ. That's your encounter with Him. You are converted. At that moment, He regenerates you. At that moment, He gives you an adoption. You are adopted as a son or a daughter into the family of God. And at that moment, He declares you no longer guilty. Isn't that powerful? It's powerful. And then, of course, we come to verse 10. What does it say? Now, after you have trusted Christ, now that you are in the kingdom, now that you're part of the family, now you've got work to do. You're a workman in the field. And that is what God wants us to do, is go out to the fields and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's writing in Ephesians 2 here to teach us that we have sin in our lives that separates us from you, but your grace is sufficient, your grace saves, and that we now have a faith, all of us in this room who have trusted Jesus Christ, we now have work to do. We have to serve. We have to serve you, serve your kingdom, and serve it well. Father, for any person in this room who does not know Christ, who has not made that decision, I pray this morning they might come forward because today may be the day that they enter into that kingdom, that they enter into your family, 
and you will welcome them with open arms because you love them. You love them as a loving father. Father, if there's anybody in this room who wants to join this church, wants to be a part of this family, this local body here in Ashley River Baptist Church, Lord, I pray that you'll move on their hearts to come forward. And if there's anybody here, Lord, who is saying, you know what, I've kind of walked away a little bit. I need to get right with you. You can pray right there in your pew or you can come forward at the altar, but you can pray. You can lay this out before you and God, you and God alone. Nobody's going to be watching. You just do it because we want to be faithful to him. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.